If you have your Bible, would you please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11? If you do not have a Bible with you, may I encourage you please to use the pew Bible that is located right in front of you or if you're in the front row behind you. And uh, please, uh, please use a Bible this morning and uh, it will help you and uh, help me as I bring the word to you. Um, and if you have that Bible, turn to page 851 in the Pew Bible, and whatever page that happens to be, in your Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. This morning, we are completing a series of messages, um, seven messages, on the topic of experiencing God, the seven realities. Now, let me just give you a a wide-angle lens for just a moment. Experiencing God is much more than simply knowing about God. We can know about God and not truly experience Him. Experiencing God has to do with knowing God. Entering into a relationship with Him whereby we encounter the living God of the universe. And the Scripture has made it very clear that this is an encounter which is available to every man, woman, and child on earth throughout all of the ages. And it's been made possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of this, of experiencing God. The seven realities that need to be sort of settled into our life as foundation stones in, in order for us to genuinely experience the reality of the living God in our lives. The first reality that we looked at is that God is always at work around you. God is always at work around you. No matter what your circumstances look like, no matter how hopeless or helpless it may feel, no matter how dark or difficult or challenging it may be, God is always at work around you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us. He was already at work before we ever realized He was at work in our lives. He is always at work. Second reality is that God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. Christianity is not simply a religion. It's not a ritual. It's not a set of rules. Christianity is all about a vital relationship with a living God. And the pages of Scripture from the very beginning to the end, from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, when God walks in the garden and you hear His plaintive cry, Adam, Adam, where are you? All the way to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, the last of the book, when it says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. All through these pages are cataloged the fact, the reality of God's pursuit of a vital living relationship with you and with me and with those who are around us, every human being. The third reality is that God invites you to become involved with Him in His work. Now, in order for us to get our heads about this, we need to go through a radical shift in our understanding. 
Those of you that are a part of this congregation know that for about the last two and a half years, there has been a word that's sort of been hanging around and above our congregation, and that word is shift. And shifting means a dislodging and a repositioning, or an intensifying and an accelerating. It's like a foundation stone getting shifted from one spot to another, or when you're shifting gears in a car, there's an intensification and an acceleration. And we've gone through, over these last season of time, we've talked about a number of different strategic shifts that the Lord wants to do in our lives for the purpose of us being able to and being ready to receive His inheritance and release the outpouring in our lives. But about three months ago, the Lord spoke to me and said, you know, I'm looking for something more than just a strategic shift. I am actually looking for you to experience radical shift. And the word radical literally means to return to the root. And what he's after is some very root mindsets that we carry. Unconscious but very real mindsets, ways of thinking, patterns of thinking that each of us just naturally fall into. And I would contend to you this morning that one very natural way that most of us unconsciously think most of the time is that for most of us, we spend our lives going through our life inviting God into our work. God, would you come and join me as I do this, whatever this is that I'm doing? But one of the radical shifts that God is bringing us into is the shift that in fact... God is always at work around us and He is inviting us to join Him in His work. These seven realities, of course, come out of Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. And one of the catchphrases that's in that book, which is a fabulous catchphrase, which I would encourage you to catch, is this. Find out what God is doing and join Him there. Find out what God is doing and join Him in that. What a powerful, transformational shift for us to experience. Reality number four. God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal Himself, His purposes, and His ways. Now again, we just heard in Isaiah 55, your ways are not my ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. God's ways are different than ours. However, it is also true and a settled reality that it is His intent and purpose to reveal His heart, His character, His ways to us. He isn't playing hide-and-go-seek. As it says in John chapter 15, I love this scripture, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from the Father I have made known to you. If we're in relationship with Him, He calls us friends. And He tells us, His ways, His purposes, His heart, His plans. 
That brings us to number five. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Say together, always. 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 It always, always leads to a crisis of belief. Now, the word crisis literally means a choice. It's a decision moment. It's a threshold moment. And when God invites you into his work and he says, come along with me, and he says, follow me, like he did to the disciples back in the New Testament, and they had to make a choice at that moment to follow him, to leave everything behind and take a step to walk with him. That was a crisis of belief. Some crises are little, some are really big. But the invitation always will continually lead you to that crisis of belief. And it requires faith and action. Which brings us to reality six, which we looked at last week when we looked at Acts chapter 10 and 11 and and Peter's crisis as it unfolded uh, in his interactions with Cornelius and the Lord. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he's doing. Listen up. God is not remotely interested in being just a nice little, you know, hood ornament on the car of your life. In fact, He's really not even interested, and you see these bumper stickers, God is my co-pilot. God isn't really all that interested in being your co-pilot. He actually wants to fly the plane. And you come along with him. But again, I think unconsciously, for many of us, we expect God to adjust to us. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't adjust that way. He's kind of solid in who he is and his way. And he invites us to adjust to him. But it's so uncomfortable. Well, yes. Because he's requiring major adjustments. And that brings us to reality number seven, which we're going to explore this morning, which is, you come to know God by experience as you obey him. And he accomplishes his work through you. You come to know God through the act of obedience. As you obey Him. You truly encounter the Lord. Philip Brooks, I love this, he says, we never become truly spiritual by sitting down and wishing to become so. You must undertake something so great that you cannot accomplish it unaided. It's when you step out of your comfort zone and into the adventure of obedience that you begin to grow. So let's explore this a little bit more deeply. You experience God 
as you obey him. Come with me now to Hebrews 11. We're actually going to back up for a moment just to give us a bit of context to our text. Our text is Hebrews 11, chapter 1 to 19. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 19. But we're going to back up to Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32, where the writer of Hebrews is, is talking to a group of people who are undergoing quite a great deal of duress. And in the midst of the pressure and testing and trials that they're facing, these words are written, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And when he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now before we unpack this just a little bit more, I want to tell you a story. I love this story. It's a story that Ben Patterson tells in his book, Waiting. How many of you have ever, ever been rock climbing? Who's ever been rock climbing in the room? Okay. How many, anybody ever been mountain climbing? Anybody been mountain climbing? Okay, wow. I'm impressed. All right. Well, here's a story about mountain climbing that he tells that directly illustrates what we're going to be talking about. He says, In 1988, three friends and I climbed Mount Lyle, the highest peak in Yosemite National Park. Two of us were experienced mountaineers. I was not one of the experienced two. Our base camp was less than 2,000 feet from the peak, but the climb to the top and back was to take the better part of a day, due in large part to the difficulty of the glacier one must cross to get to the top. The morning of the climb, we started out chattering and cracking jokes. As the hours passed, the two mountaineers opened up a wide gap between them and me, their lesser experienced companion. Being competitive by nature, I began to look for shortcuts to beat them to the top. I thought I saw one to the right of an outcropping of rock. So I went deaf to the protests of my companions. Perhaps it was the effect of the high altitude but the significance of the two experienced climbers not choosing the path did not register in my consciousness. It should have. For 30 minutes later, I was trapped in a cul-de-sac of rock atop the Lyle Glacier, looking down several hundred feet of a sheer slope of ice pitched at about a 45-degree angle. I was only about 10 feet from the safety of a rock, but one little slip and I wouldn't stop sliding until I landed in the valley floor some 50 miles away. It was nearly noon, and the warm sun had the glacier glistening with slippery ice. I was stuck, and I was scared. It took an hour 
for my experienced climbing friends to find me. Standing on the rock I wanted to reach, one of them leaned out and used an ice axe to chip two little footsteps in the glacier. And then he gave me the following instructions. Ben, you must step out from where you are, put your foot where the first foothold is, and when your foot touches it, without a moment's hesitation, Swing your other foot across and land it on the next step. And when you do that, reach out. I'll take your hand and pull you to safety. Now that sounded really good to me. It was the next thing that he said that made me more frightened than ever. But listen carefully. As you step across, do not lean into the mountain. If anything, lean out a bit. Otherwise, your feet may fly out from under you and you'll start sliding down. Now, I don't like prefaces. When I'm on the edge of a cliff, my instincts are to lie down and hug the mountain. To become one with it. Not to lean away from it. But that's what my good friend was telling me to do. I looked at him real hard. Was there any reason... Any reason at all that I shouldn't trust him? I certainly hope not. So for a moment, based solely on what I believe to be the goodwill and good sense of my friend, I decided to say no to what I felt, to stifle my impulse, to cling to the security of the mountain, to lean out, to step out, and to traverse the ice to safety. It took less than two seconds to find out if my faith was well-founded. It was. To save us, God often tells us to do things that are the opposite of our natural inclination. Is God loving? Is He faithful? Can we trust Him? He is. He is. And we can. So, let's talk about what faith is, first of all. Because faith and obedience are connected. We're going to get to obedience in just a moment. But first we have to set the foundation of faith. Faith is substantial. It has a substance to it. It is not simply wishful thinking. It is not simply illusions. Faith is real. It has substance to it. Faith is the substance, the writer of Hebrews says. Therefore, it is substantial. It has an object. It is objective. Did you know that everyone in the world has faith? There is not a single person in the world who does not have faith. Even atheists have faith. Faith is simply believing in something or somebody. I mean, it's, it's a belief in something. Everybody, even if it's just yourself, if that's, they have faith in themselves, but that's faith. There's an object. Our faith is objective. Our object of faith is the Son. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Our faith is objective. It has an object. It isn't simply a formula. Faith is not about things that you say, or it's not about 
you know, this particular ritual or this particular rule or anything like that. It is about that relationship with an object and that object is the living God of the universe, Jesus Christ. It's objective. It's also subjective in that it's in the process of developing. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes. In His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That faith is developing even in the midst of trials and challenges and temptations and all of those other things. God is refining and growing your faith. Because that faith has an object and it's also subjective. It's developing. Okay? So, faith, first of all, is substantial. Secondly, faith is seen. Again, go back to the text. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now that sounds counterintuitive if I've ever heard anything. Being certain of what you do not see. But faith looks behind and beyond the specific circumstances that you may be facing in your life and it sees the activity and hand of God at work in you and around you and for you. Faith is seeing. The prophet Habakkuk writes about this in Habakkuk 2, 1 to 3. He says, I will stand at my watch, station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Faith sees with expectancy that which is not yet there, but which we know by the promises of God is coming, in fact. Now, extra sermon points this morning. For anybody who can tell me, where is this scripture repeated in the New Testament? Particularly, though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. Anybody? Know where that was? Anybody? No? Not Revelation. Where is it? No? Hebrews, what we just read, Hebrews 10. Don't throw away your confidence. You need to persevere. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But the righteous one will live by faith. If he shrinks back, I'll not be pleased. We're not of those who shrink back. It's seeing. It's seeing. Those without faith are like piano mice. You ever heard of the piano mice? Lived all their lives in a large piano. 
The music of the instrument came to them in their piano world, filling all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. At first, the mice were impressed by it. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who made the music, though invisible to them. Someone above, yet close to them. They loved to think of the great player who they could not see. Then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He had found out how the music was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of graduated lengths that trembled and vibrated. They must revise all of their old beliefs. None but the most conservative could any longer believe in the unseen player. Later, another explorer carried the explanation further. Hammers were now the secret. Great numbers of hammers dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, though the pianist continued to play. Faith is seeing. Faith is stepping. Faith is stepping. Now let me define what a step is to you, and then you can give the appropriate response of ooh and ah, okay? A step is an advance or a movement that's made by raising one foot and bringing it down elsewhere. Isn't that amazing? But faith requires movement. It requires stepping. It requires taking one foot and putting it down elsewhere. Now, the African impala is an incredible animal. It's amazing. It can leap, listen to this, 10 feet high and go for it and leap for a length of 30 feet. 10 feet high, 30 feet. The best high jumper in all of creation, all right? 10 feet up, 30 feet out. But an African impala can be kept in any zoo enclosure with a wall that's only three feet high. You know why? Because they will not leap where they cannot see where their foot will land. And there's a whole lot of Christians who are kept in little three-foot enclosures because they're afraid to step because they simply can't see what might be on the other side. But faith is stepping, sometimes not knowing what's on the other side of that step. That was certainly true of the ancients who were commended. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Even though we can't see where our feet will step, even though we trust God and our lives are in His hands. All right. Now, what does faith look like? 
As we go on in our scripture, it gives us several examples, and we're going to focus on just one of those. So I'm going to quickly go through the first three. First, faith requires costly sacrifice. The example is Abel. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Then in Hebrews 1.5, faith requires daily reliance. Here we have the example of Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he didn't experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And then faith requires radical obedience. And we have the example of Noah who built his ark 500 miles away from any ocean, a thousand times too big for his family. But when he was warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear he built an ark to save his family. And by faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And then as we go on, we have the example of Abraham. And that's where we're going to focus the rest of our attention this morning. All right? So, because we're going to make that connection between faith and obedience. So, again, turn to your text. Come with me. Hang with me. We're almost there. Hebrews 11, verse 8. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. And we're going to read through verse 19. And then I'm going to make a few comments on this. By faith, Abraham, when called to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise." And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, who had received the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. All right, let's talk about obedience. What does obedience look like? First of all, obedience is listening and doing. In fact, the root word for obedience is the word hearing. But hearing also requires doing. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, the beginning of Abraham's story, the first thing that comes... now. Now, Abram is living in Ur of the Chaldees. It is a city that is full of, of uh, great culture and economics and education. It had an enormous ziggurat right in the center of, of the city that was a, uh, uh, built to the study of the moon and the worship of the moon. And, and it was an entirely pagan city. And in the midst of this entirely pagan environment, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I'll show you. Wow. Wow. 
It's amazing. Abraham listened, heard the word, and did it. Jesus tells us very clearly in Luke chapter 6 the wisdom of listening and doing, of being obedient. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'll show you what he is like who comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house, dug down deep, laid the foundation on rock, And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house but couldn't shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my word and does not put them to practice is like a man who built his house on the sand or the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Obedience builds our house on the rock. It's the listening and doing. We all hear things from the Lord. We read the scriptures and God speaks to our heart and we say, not yet. Or, you can't really mean that. And we try to adjust God to us. He's not adjusting. He's inviting you to adjust to Him. He's inviting you into obedience, which is listening and doing. Secondly, obedience is a journey. Like Abraham... Go to Acts chapter 7, when he's just about to be stoned, Philip, I'm sorry, Stephen, speaks of Abraham. The high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this he replied, Acts 7, 2, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I'll show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him into this land where you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance there, not even a foot of ground. But God promised that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even at that, though at that time Abraham had no child. He went into a land. He, didn't, he left the familiar to go into the complete unfamiliar. And obedience is a lifelong journey with God, trusting Him. It is a process, not a product. It is a destiny, not a destination. You don't get a certificate saying, I've passed obedience. It's lifelong learning. Or as um, Peterson puts it, Eugene Peterson, he has a title of one of his books is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a journey with God. Some of you are just at the beginning of this journey. Some of you are much further along in this journey. But all of us are continuing to walk in this journey of obedience with God. You don't graduate. Obedience is courageous. Obedience is courageous. When you're called to do something by the Lord, it takes courage to be obedient. Think about Joshua. The Lord says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Listen, courage is not the absence of fear, but it's acting in the face of fear. A friend of mine did a study on um, the words fear not. You know, whenever an angel arrives in Scripture, 
He always says, fear not, while they're trembling in terror. Well, as they did the the study behind that, they discovered this. When the angel says, fear not, it doesn't literally mean, don't be afraid. What it means is, I understand you're afraid, but I have something for you, so don't run, stand and receive it. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is acting in the face of fear. Guess what? When you're obedient to the Lord, it will often bring you into dissonance with the culture around you. It may bring you dissonance into your group of friends, dissonance in your workplace or in your school. It may bring you dissonance with your neighborhood. It may, you know, but obedience is courageous. Obedience is hopeful. I love when you read this passage in Hebrews 11. It's just shot through with hope. Hope is incredible. It's an incredibly powerful gift to us. It's sort of akin to optimism. George Sweeting, a past president of Moody Bible Institute, once gave this memorable definition of optimism. Optimism is when an 85-year-old man marries a 35-year-old woman and moves into a 12-room house next to an elementary school. But what's even more radical than that is that a 99-year-old man would talk to his 90-year-old wife and say, we're going to have a child, and the offspring from that child, the descendants of which are not only going to fill an elementary school, but are going to fill the world. What hope in the promises of God. I love this saying. You might want to jot this one down. Hope is the bird that feels the light and sings to greet the dawn while it's still dark. Hope is the bird that feels the light and sings to greet the dawn while it is still dark. Obedience is perseverance. We're almost there. Just two more. Very quickly, Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him. The testing required perseverance. Perseverance means literally to remain under. And Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us a little bit about what you and I have to persevere through. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That hard press, that affliction, that's sort of the lowest level of testing. Mild or moderate. In the Greek, it's the same word that we get pressure. It's the daily pressures of life. Somebody has said, you know, life is so difficult because it is so daily. The daily pressures that we experience. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed. This indicates a level of testing more intense 
and less often experienced. The term means without a way. It's those times when you don't know what to do and you don't know whom to go to. And you're perplexed. How do I handle a situation? How do I handle unfair people? How do I handle the injustice around me? Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted. This is a more extreme level of persecution. A more extreme level of testing. It doesn't pass quickly. It can come emotionally. It can come physically. It's a persecution. Struck down, but not destroyed. This is the highest level. The ultimate testing. Maximum stress. When a huge, enormous life event pulls the rug right out from under you. Extreme. Struck down. But not destroyed. And he goes on then in verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. There's a purpose to the testing. If you think that if I'm obedient to God, I'm never going to experience any more challenges in my life, let me talk to you. Because that's not true. When we choose to walk with God, we will be tested. But obedience perseveres through the testing. Finally, obedience is reasonable. I love what it says here. In uh, Back to our text, Hebrews 11, verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He reasoned. The word there is, he actually calculated it out. And in the natural, it looked impossible. But he chose to trust God. And so obedience is reasonable, even when it seems crazy. You're doing what, Noah? You're doing what, Abraham? You're going to sacrifice? The only son, the one you've waited for all these years? The promise? Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. This is not for saints. This isn't for extraordinary people. This isn't for people who are, you know, professional Christians. This is for you and for me. This is for us. It's reasonable to be obedient to the Lord. It's reasonable. You know, we're not going to, we don't deserve a medal for being obedient. It's what's expected. It's reasonable. Last scripture. Someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's God, one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, James is not saying something different than Paul. 
who says, by faith we are saved. Our salvation comes by grace and receiving that grace in faith. But the absolute other side of the coin, the, the, the necess, necessary response to that faith and that grace is to be obedient to God and to begin to walk that out with our actions. Faith and deeds. We're not saved by our works, but our deeds are an integral connect, integrally connected to the grace and the faith. And we begin to walk it out in obedience. And when we do, we experience God. We encounter Him. We encounter Him when we step out. We encounter Him when we say, oh, this faith is substantial. And I see something, even though I can't fully see it yet, in my certain, I'm going to walk out, I'm going to step out into Him. Is it risky? Well, yeah. Is it worth it? Absolutely. There's no other way. There's no other way. Let me tell you a last story and then we're going to close. From time to time, lobsters have to leave their shells. Apparently, it's a necessary part of the growth process. While they're growing, they need their shell to protect them from being torn apart. And yet, as a result of having grown on the inside, their old shell has to be abandoned. If they did not abandon it, their old shell would soon become a prison and finally their casket. The tricky part for the lobster is the brief period of time between when the old shell is discarded and the new one is formed. During that terribly vulnerable period, the transition must be scary to the lobster. Currents gleefully cartwheel you from coral to kelp. Hungry schools of fish are ready to make you a part of their food chain. For a while, at least, that old shell shell must have looked pretty good, even if it had began to feel so cramped. Sometimes lobsters die between shells. That's life and death in the ocean blue. Though sad, perhaps it's not as sad as the possibility of slowly suffocating in a shell that no longer fits. We're not so different from lobsters. If we didn't have a shell, a structure, a framework within which to grow, then I doubt any of us would have made it this far. Even so, change and growth are necessary for survival. Discipleship means being so committed to Christ that when He bids us to follow, to change, to risk, to grow, to leave our shells behind, we do what He asks. So let me ask you a last question. How can I activate my faith and obedience? It's very simple. The answer is given to us in verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Worship team, come on up. So here's what we do. Here's the invitation this morning. Come to God. If you've never come to Him or if you're in the middle of a situation right now that's perplexing, afflicting, challenging, whatever... The invitation of the Lord to you right now is come to God. Believe that He is there. Believe that He is there. When you come to Him, believe that there is an object to your faith. There is a living reality. The God of the universe. Believe He is there. And trust that He'll keep His Word. Because He will. He will keep His Word. He is faithful to all that He has promised. You can trust Him.